Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey peeps, welcome back. It was a mild and clear day in the nation's capital. More than a year had transpired since the first sets of votes had been cast. Finally, after a grueling and difficult campaign, the president-elect took his place to recite the oath of office and present his inaugural address to the gathered crowd. No, I'm not talking about the 2020 presidential campaign, though today's topic might seem like it was pulled from the headlines. I am diving into the election of 1800. Filled with mudslinging, infighting, and secret deals, the election of 1800 is one of the most contentious and impactful elections in history. It was the first time a president was voted out of office after serving only one term, and was the first transition of power from differing political parties. But the election of 1800 was so much more than making Adams a one-term president and had far-reaching implications for history. So let's dive into just what happened, why it's important, and why it inspired a constitutional amendment. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. The election of 1800 is one of the most scandalous and dirty elections in American history. Almost all of the quirks of a contemporary political campaign has its roots in the fight for the presidency in 1800. While parties formed in 1796, the election of 1800 was the first time that parties really had their act together and took advantage of mudslinging and attacking the opposition in an effort to gain more votes for their side. And like a lot of our recent elections, citizens in 1800 felt they were staring down the barrel of history and the fate of the country was on the line. The country was divided, and this presidential fight only served to widen the gap. But who was running for president? Let's take a look, shall we? I should say first that when I say running for president, I do not mean to imply there was an active campaign from the candidates themselves. Unlike contemporary elections, the candidates of the past did not go out and try to convince others to vote for them. There were no primaries or stump speeches. Candidates for president were to act as if they weren't all that interested in the office. If they did campaign actively, they were seen as unworthy of the job and therefore disqualified from holding office. There were a total of five candidates running in 1800. Incumbent John Adams, who was facing some serious backlash after a series of missteps culminating in his signing of the Alien and Sedition Acts, and running to be his vice president was Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, brother of Thomas Pinckney, who ran with Adams in 1796. Pinckney, who was a Revolutionary War veteran and a Southerner, was chosen due to his stature and the hope he would be able to deliver some votes from his home state of South Carolina. Randomly, John Jay was also running under the Federalist banner. He didn't have a very successful campaign, though, earning only one vote. Jay was the governor of New York at the time and had served as chief justice to the Supreme Court under George Washington until 1795. For the Democratic Republicans, Thomas Jefferson was the man of the hour. The sitting vice president, who spent a majority of his tenure undercutting Adams, made sure to keep his name above the fray, feigning disinterest in the election. 
However, he did secretly hire a journalist, James Callender, to write incendiary pieces against Adams. So yeah, he was a real gentleman. For his vice president, the Democratic Republicans picked Aaron Burr. Burr, most infamous for his frenemy relationship with Alexander Hamilton, was a key player in New York politics and was chosen as the perfect balance to Jefferson's southern origins. The campaign, as it was, lasted almost the whole year, with voting commencing in March of 1800. Unlike today with one voting day throughout the country, prior elections were held on various days since all aspects of voting was left up to the states. This meant results from state elections trickled in throughout the year, and people read as the vote tally swung from Adams to Jefferson, depending on the latest state to cast their ballots. The discourse throughout the campaign was reminiscent of what we see in current politics. However, I dare to say the attacks lobbed from one side to the other in contemporary campaigns is mild compared to some of the charges levied in 1800. For example, one published rebuke described John Adams as a, quote, blind, bald, crippled, toothless man with a hideous, hermaphroditical character, end quote. I know the Twitter universe is harsh when it comes to politics, but I don't recall seeing any official campaign ad as rough as that. So why such hard feelings? Well, both sides felt they were on the precipice, so to speak, and felt the other side was going to spell the end of the country. Supporters of Jefferson believed the Federalists would alter the laws to create a monarchy, having Adams serve for life and bequeathing the country to his son, John Quincy. Supporters of Adams believed Jefferson to be a godless demagogue who would ruin the nation due to his support of the French. The election was divided on almost every line imaginable. Religious, regional, party, and ideological. To be fair, there were two very different political styles and approaches vying for office. Adams believed in limiting majority rule, writing, quote, Mixed in one assembly, equal laws can never be expected. They will either be made by numbers to plunder the few who are rich, or by influence to fleece the many who are poor, end quote. Jefferson portrayed himself as a man of the people, though he was a large, land-owning aristocrat, and espoused a belief in majority rule. For Jefferson, democracy flourished the more people participated, though he had a limited view on who should be allowed to participate. Think landowners such as himself, farmers, and yeomen. No women or minorities included. It was these deep-seated concerns about the potential end of the American experiment that explains why this election quickly became so contentious and fraught with turmoil and accusations of corruption. And it seems as if at least some of those accusations were true. As returns came in and showed the Democratic-Republicans gaining momentum in New England, Federalist-controlled legislatures in Massachusetts and New Hampshire repealed their statute allowing for a popular vote of their electors and put delegate selection into their own hands. In New York, where Aaron Burr successfully lobbied for Republican gains, Alexander Hamilton tried to convince the governor, John Jay, to call a lame duck session to change their election rules. Jay refused. By the end of the election cycle, seven of the 16 states in the union either changed or greatly modified procedures for electing delegates to the Electoral College. New York proved to be the swing state needed for electoral victory, and Aaron Burr was highly effective in his campaign efforts. He worked hard in canvassing and getting out the vote efforts, all of which helped deliver New York for the Jefferson-Burr ticket. In another example of how the framers had not planned for the rise of political parties, 
there was no mechanism spelled out for voting for multiple parties during an election in the Constitution. This was clearly a struggle in 1796, which had that awkward result of a president and vice president forced to serve together, though they held very different political beliefs. So by 1800, these political factions had to devise a way that eligible voters could make their choices known. There was no paper ballot mechanism in place. Mainly, people stood in one place for their preferred candidate, and those present would count heads to determine the number of votes. In places where there was this idea of a ballot, the vote was typically tallied by placing something into a pre-marked box. Weird piece of trivia I found while doing research for this episode is the history of the word ballot. It comes from the Italian word bolata, which means little ball. This translated to the first voters placing pebbles, or bullets, when indicating their preference for president. Of the five and a quarter million people living in the United States at the time, only 600,000 were eligible to vote. Remember, this was before women could vote, or indigenous Americans, or black Americans, or anyone who didn't own property, with the exception of New Jersey, who allowed white women to vote, and Maryland, who allowed free black men to vote, the rest of the country relied on white, land-owning men to make the decisions for the country. And before you get too excited about New Jersey and Maryland, both states eventually repealed those voting laws. At the end of the longest election in history, Adams lost his re-election bid to the Democratic-Republican ticket, securing only 65 votes to the 73 cast for the other side. As I mentioned in my episode covering Adams' presidency, Signing the Alien and Sedition Acts proved a fatal blow to his presidency. Barely squeaking by in the election of 1796, Adams faced a united opposition dedicated to his downfall by 1800. The effort was aided in part by the fracturing within his own political party. Again, you can credit or blame Alexander Hamilton's meddling for having at least a partial impact on the election results. Hamilton was not a fan of Adams, and he let those feelings be known in a pamphlet titled Letter from Alexander Hamilton Concerning the Public Conduct and Character of John Adams, President of the United States. In this letter, which was published publicly in the run-up to the election, Hamilton made his case for why he felt Adams should be denied re-election. The pamphlet criticized Adams's handling of the XYZ affair and his decision to terminate two of his cabinet secretaries. The letter, supposedly only intended for Federalists to ensure they voted for Pinckney, Adams's de facto running mate, made it into the hands of the Democratic Republicans, who took full advantage of the criticism and made sure copies were distributed throughout the country. A few other contributing factors played into Adams's loss. For one, he lost New York, the state who voted for him in 1796, and his running mate failed to deliver the votes from South Carolina. Had either of these things gone differently, Adams may have squeaked by with another term. Another factor contributing to Adams's defeat is the Three-Fifths Compromise. If you remember from my episode on the Constitution, a compromise was struck when drafting the Constitution to provide slave-holding Southerners a boost in their population count and therefore a larger representation in the House. For example, Pennsylvania and Virginia had the same free population, but because of the Three-Fifths Clause, Virginia netted an extra three seats. This translated to the Democratic-Republican ticket, clinching an electoral victory within the southern states. When all was done and the votes were tallied, 
Thomas Jefferson had 73 votes. But so did Aaron Burr. So while the country knew that Adams hadn't been reelected, it was still unclear as to who would actually become president. If you're thinking this is a bit crazy, let me remind you of the provision in the Constitution that said electors would cast two ballots. There was no separate vote for president and vice president. In order to ensure an electoral victory and get the candidates you wanted, someone had to remember to withhold their vote for the individual slated to be vice president. The Federalists remembered this. The Democratic Republicans did not. And here is where a mini-constitutional crisis begins. Jefferson and Democratic Republicans expected Aaron Burr to bow out and allow Jefferson to ascend to the presidency. However, Burr kept quiet and decided to let the chips fall where they may. Adding to the issue was the House was filled with lame-duck Federalists who were less than excited to vote for Jefferson. Unlike today, where the new Congress is sworn in ahead of the president, Jefferson faced men who were pissed off about losing the election and had nothing to lose as they were already on their way out. In the event of an electoral tie, the election goes to the House of Representatives. Each state gets one vote, and a majority is required to elect the president. In 1801, there were 16 states, so this required nine states to vote in favor of Jefferson. Going into the House election, eight states were controlled by Jeffersonians, six were held by Federalists, and two states were split. But the Federalists loathed Jefferson and refused to vote for him. Remember, the campaign was brutal, and there was a strong fear of what damage Jefferson would do to the country if elected. The Federalists instead tried to buy off some of Jefferson's supporters, offering political posts if they switched their vote to Burr. Jefferson, ever the crude politician, also worked the back channels and made promises of his own to ensure continued support. This battle and jockeying for votes lasted for 35 ballots, and it was unclear as to whether there would be a presidential successor come March 4th. And the longer it took, the more hyperbole about the election flourished. Charges of misdeeds flew freely in the press, and each side accused the other of attempting to steal the election. Several states threatened to organize their militias to march on the Capitol if their candidate did not win, including the governors of Pennsylvania and Virginia, who threatened to utilize military force to prevent Congress from, quote, stealing the election from Jefferson. Hmm. Does that ring a bell at all? Ultimately, it was Alexander Hamilton and some backdoor dealing that allowed for Jefferson to finally claim victory. Hamilton, who was the ultimate Federalist, loathed Jefferson. But he believed Burr to be infinitely worse and rallied Federalists to cast a ballot for the devil they knew. And though he initially opposed negotiating with the Federalists, Jefferson eventually relented and, through an intermediary, assured the opposition he would keep the financial system in place and continue a stance of neutrality in the European conflict. And finally, on February 17, 1801, Thomas Jefferson secured enough votes from the House and was made President of the United States. With victory secured, Jefferson turned his attention towards uniting the country, and in his inaugural address, he famously said, quote, but every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated 
where reason is left free to combat it. Jefferson is definitely not one of my favorite presidents, but the man sure could write. The political turmoil lasted into his presidential term, with critics referring to Jefferson as the Negro president because of the inflated representation in Congress. But the Democratic-Republicans managed to take hold of the presidency for the next 24 years, bringing in a time known as the Era of Good Feelings. So, where does the Constitutional Amendment come in? Well, Jefferson was mighty pissed that Burr tried to make the ultimate power play and become president. And the Democratic-Republicans also saw the potential of repeating the same issues of either having a tie, or worse, having to serve with someone from a different political party. And so, the Twelfth Amendment was born. The Twelfth Amendment separates the voting for president and vice president. Quote, The electors shall meet in the respective states and vote by ballot for president and vice president, one of whom, at least, shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. They shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president and, in distinct ballots, the person voted for as vice president. End quote. The amendment passed Congress in 1803 and was ratified by the states in 1804. This seemingly minor change forever altered our voting history and is another example that shows the founders were not above making changes to the Constitution when they found deficiencies. I wanted to talk about the election of 1800 for a number of reasons. One, elections in general fascinate me. I am the nerd on election night who is monitoring the returns and trying to figure out the math for any given proposition. Second, I find the election of 1800 reminiscent of some of the feelings and concerns with the most recent presidential election. Many Americans were worried about what the outcome would mean for the country, from both sides of the political spectrum, and the election was divisive for many and split people across various lines. Again, regional, religious, ideological, political, just like in 1800. And lastly, I thought it was important to chat about the election of 1800 for its impacts to today. So much of our contemporary actions and precedent can be tied to the past, and I think the election of 1800 is a perfect and timely example of that. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider a rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. I love hearing from you, and it helps get the podcast into the ears of others. You can support the show through Buy Me a Coffee, where your donations help fund the coffee and book supply needed to keep these episodes interesting. And if you follow the show on Instagram, you know just how many books I have collected in the name of research. You can learn about supporting the show, read about source material, and request an episode topic all by visiting the website at www.civicsandcoffee.com. See you next week, peeps. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.